Happy snow day. You know, it's uh, always interesting when I think about and reflect back on the idea of the snow day or inclement weather because it reminds me of one of my favorite stories, and that's of Charles Spurgeon and the fact that if it weren't for a snow day, he may have never become a believer who gave his life fully over to Christ because there was a really bad day and his church that he normally went to was closed and he was trudging along. This is in the 1800s, so he wasn't driving. And there was a light on in a church and he made his way in through the blizzard and there was only a handful of people, five or six. And um, one of the deacons stepped up that morning to preach and because he hadn't prepared much, he went back to the gospel. And he was reading the gospel and it was on that morning when Charles Spurgeon first surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. Within a couple of years, he was a pastor. And in a few more years, he was leading worship with 10,000 plus people. So thank God for snow days. Amen. So this week, I get to follow up Andrew's power-filled and uplifting sermon from last week where Paul described those of us who are in Christ as more than conquerors, because God's love is so great. Amen? God's love is great. And this is good news if I've ever heard good news. But this morning as we transition into Romans 9, it wasn't necessarily good news to everyone. And this is kind of like the good cop, bad cop week, right? Last week we could talk about how awesome it is to be a Gentile. We finish up kind of that section on This is how God has brought the Gentiles in, and now he begins to address Israel. Or what was formerly thought of as Israel, as we see this morning, he starts to redefine Israel. And we'll see this tension between God being sovereign, meaning he's in charge or in control, and man's desire to be in control of their own fate. This will lead back to tension between the pursuit of self-righteousness through the law and a righteousness that comes by faith which is throughout the book of Romans, but we're going to see it here again clearly. And we'll kind of look at this in three sections. Um, Verses 1 through 5, Paul will set this foundation for love and respect for Israel. Paul starts off really trying to tell them how much he loves and respects Israel. Then verses 6 through 29, we look at God's sovereign election and the rejection of Israel when it comes to the Messiah. And we'll finish with Paul's conclusions in the last three verses. I'm going to start by reading Romans 9, 1 through 6. Paul says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. See, Paul's now shifted from directly addressing the Gentiles' acceptance into the kingdom After he's laid down the foundation for a three-phase salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. We've been talking about this a lot, right? 
But we're going to keep talking about it because a lot of people don't think about it in those terms. You were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. Now he turns his message over to Israel. And it seems like he begins with a very heartfelt plea for them to listen. It says in verse 1, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. So he's invoking the name of two of the members of the Trinity, right? Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He wants them to know how serious what he's about to say is and how important it is that they listen and that he's not just making this up, but this is sincere. He wants them to know that the truth he's about to convey is indeed from God. And he also understands it's going to be hard to swallow. Verses 2 and 3, Paul writes, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. Paul's saying, look, I wish that in some way I could be a substitute. I could step in on your behalf. I would rather that I be separated from Christ than you. I would rather that I be separated and cursed from Christ than you, Israel, who I am a part of, who I have a deep love and affection for. Just because he has given his life to Christ doesn't mean he doesn't value, love, and respect Israel anymore. After all, he was a Pharisee. After all, he believes in Israel. And how do we know that? Well, let's see what he goes on to say about Israel. Yours is the adoption to sonship, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and from you is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Israel, you're a big deal to God. Let that sink in for a minute. Israel, throughout history with God, means everything to God, but not because of them. Because sometimes they miss this point. Israel was important not because they did anything to be important, but because God chose Israel. They were special because God chose them, and that's what makes them special. They were chosen by God, right? Paul's reminding them of what God has done through them and for them throughout history. But God chose Israel. Israel didn't choose God. And we're going to go on to see that. This is where it gets a little sticky, especially for a lot of Arminians, right? A lot of free willers. Because God is sovereign, and how do you wrestle election and free will? How does that play out? And we're not going to get deep into that today, but we're going to see elements of election. Because truly, God is sovereign, and God chooses what he wills and what he wants. And we can't ignore this because it's in the text throughout the Bible. So beginning in verses 6 through 9, it says this. It is not as though God's word has failed. This is an interesting transition verse. He goes from letting them know that he's really serious, and this is coming from a place of love. This is coming from a place of wanting them to really understand. But he says, it's not as though God is, God's word has failed. What does he mean? Well, he means that God chose Israel, but it's not God's fault Israel has rejected Jesus. God has chosen Israel, but it's not God's word that has failed. It is Israel who's failed to accept Christ as the Messiah. We see this idea. Because true Israel is different 
than what they think it is. Look at this. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. See, Paul is beginning this process of redefining who a true Israelite is in the sight of God. So God's never failed. And if, if people of Israel or these people who have this heredity or this genetic makeup that makes them part of Israel, just because they're descended from Israel or from Abraham doesn't make them Israel. That's what Paul's beginning to redefine. Israel isn't a physical thing. It is a spiritual thing. Does that make sense? Just like we get grafted into the vine, right? Most of us here aren't by heredity Israelites. Yet we are all a part of Israel through Christ Jesus. Amen? Because Israel is God's chosen people and will remain that. But it wasn't a race of people. It was a people of faith through a promise that God made. And this is where God's word never failed. There was a misunderstanding about what God really meant. Sure, did God use Abraham physically? Absolutely. And can we trace back Jesus through the line of Abraham? Absolutely. But not everybody who is descended from Abraham is truly Israel. That is what Paul's laying out. And this is a big, big deal for people who look back and say, man, I'm a pureblood Israelite, right? And one of the pop culture things we can think of today is like Harry Potter, right? You think of this idea of like there's these purebloods in Harry Potter and they have a problem with these mudbloods or these half-breeds, right? These people who aren't fully able to trace back their lineage to wizarding houses, right? This is the same thing with Israel. Israel's like, look, I can go back 10 generations and my family was a part of the tribe of Benjamin, right? I can look at that and say, wow, I can take pride in that. I am one of God's chosen people. Paul's kind of wrecking that right now. He says specifically, children, not the children by physical descent. See, it is through Isaac, the child of God's choosing, not by physical descent, that one becomes Israel. Because Abraham had another child before Isaac, right? You guys remember that? Ishmael? Not all the kids that came from Ishmael are Israelites. Why? Because that's not what God chose. God chose Isaac. And we're going to get into that deeper here. But, you know, this is really interesting because it mirrors what John's proclamation is in John 1, 12 through 13. He says this, But to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus Christ, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of blood, nor of the desire or will of a man, but born of God. See, this is a consistent theme in the gospel. To be a child of God has to do with faith in Christ. And faith in Christ has to do with God's decision to allow that to happen. God chose to allow. Look, he says, he gave the right to become. Who gave the right? God gave the right for those who are his children to become children. God has to give permission for someone to become a child of his. And that happens through faith. Let's move on to Romans 10. Through 9, 10 through 13. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time 
by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had anything good or bad, or done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Well, this gets even harder to understand, right? It's harder to accept, but look at this, especially for those who love this idea of, well, God can choose, right? God has the ability to choose, but he chooses it by looking at your whole life and what decisions you're going to make. You guys heard that argument? You heard that argument, that the free will argument of election and free will is that, well, God is going to look at your whole life and he knows everything you'll ever choose, and so you're saved because you chose right throughout your life. That's ludicrous when you read this text when he said, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. See, this is important this morning because this goes back to justification by faith alone through Christ alone. God gives us that justification, but God chooses to do that. He chose each one of us. See, Paul's second example of the true Israelite digs deeper. It says, God chose Jacob over Esau before they were born. Why? God elected Jacob not by works. And it says that, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, in order that people could look and say, God is the one making the decision before they're born, before they have any ability to do good or bad or good or evil, before they get to choose, I'm going to choose Jacob. And this is unorthodox because who should have been chosen by tradition? Esau, he's the older brother, right? But God chose Jacob. So he goes on to say this. Paul is laying out this concept of sovereign election, meaning that God chooses who is a part of Israel, his chosen people, and who isn't a part of Israel. This decision is his alone to make, and he makes this decision based on his purpose and pleasure, not man's effort or performance. God makes the decision based on his purpose and his pleasure for his glory, not based on man's effort or performance. So naturally, the question comes in 9.14, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? And Paul will say, no, not at all. Is God unjust? Now, this is a proposed argument when it comes to God's sovereign election. Isn't this God unjust if he elected to use Jacob over Esau without even giving them a chance to prove themselves to him? And his answer is simple, no. Not at all. But if you're honest, for some of you, you question that. Well, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense. Why would God not give them an opportunity? Why would God not give them a chance to prove themselves? Of course, it seems unjust that God would choose one over the other before they're born. They didn't do anything wrong. It's not like Esau had done anything wrong. And then they'll go back and say, well, look, God could look and Esau was going to do wrong stuff. That's a cop-out answer. That's an answer that says, I don't, I don't want God to be sovereign in the sense that God gets to really make the decision. I like the idea that God's um, omnipotent. He can see all things, right? But his sovereignty, him saying, I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. How can that jive with the loving God we talked about last week? Right? This is a real wrestle for people. Is God just or not? And see, this morning, the choice we have to make by faith, if we are to accept Paul's teaching, is whether or not God is truly 
perfectly just. That's the first thing you have to decide. And you can only do this by faith. Right? Because you can't see justness in its entirety because you're not God. And you can't see the end other than by faith because you're not God. So you have to, by faith, either choose to believe God is perfectly just. Why perfectly? Because God is perfect in every one of his attributes and justice is one of God's attributes or not. See, God in his nature... God is just in his nature and therefore doesn't possess the capacity to be unjust. If within God's nature he is just, then there is no capacity within God to be unjust. Just as I don't possess the capacity at this point in my life to slam dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. I just don't. I can't jump that high anymore. I don't have the legs anymore. Even if I tried really hard and exercised a lot, I guarantee it's still not happening. I could barely do it in high school. God does not possess the capacity to be anything other than he is because he is perfect. And one of his attributes is that he's what? Immutable, meaning he doesn't change. So if God is just in eternity past, he will be just throughout eternity. He is just and he is perfectly just, meaning in every sense of the word just, God is just. This means that God only does what is just, and if we deem his behavior to be anything otherwise, we are misunderstood and wrong in our thinking. And I want you to hear that this morning. If you look at what God is doing and you think that it is unjust, you're wrong, not God. Why do you think humility is such an important attribute of Christianity? Because when I look at what God does in this this scenario, I could easily say, well, this seems very unjust. God is choosing Jacob over Esau, even though that wasn't even precedent, even though they haven't done anything wrong. And I can do that. I can do that all day. But the reality is, if I'm truly going to have faith in the God of the Bible, and I truly believe that God is who he says he is and he's just, then I'm wrong when I feel or believe otherwise when it comes to God being just. I want you to hear that this morning. You don't get to decide for God what justice looks like. God gets to decide. Just like you don't get to decide what good and evil are, because you know in the Bible, good and bad are subjective things, but good and evil are objective things. Meaning, if it's contrary to the nature of who God is and God is good, then it is evil by extension. Bad is subjective. Like, you might, we might go out to lunch today, and you might think what we ate was bad, and I might think it was good. Good and evil are not subjective or things. They're objective things. God is good, and so everything about God is good, and everything God deems important is good. Anything contrary to that is automatically evil. God is just. Everything about God is just. Every decision God makes is just, so anything that's contrary to what God decides would be unjust. In fact, if Esau were to be the one who had ruled over Jacob, that would have been unjust because God is sovereign, and he gets to decide. So let's keep moving on. Verses 15 through 18. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for the very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, 
God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. You guys like this? Does this sit well with you? Because for most people it doesn't if they're being honest. He says, I will have mercy on who I want to have mercy on. You don't get to tell me who I have mercy on. And what is mercy really quick? What? Mercy is not deserving something bad or not getting something bad that we've deserved. So like when you get pulled over for speeding and you don't get a ticket, that would be an act of mercy, right? So he's saying, I'm going to show mercy on who I want. So really the reality of this comes back to the very beginning. Is everyone guilty of sin? Is everyone really guilty of sin? If this is true, then any time God deems to choose someone and save someone, he is displaying mercy, right? See, this is at the core of our doctrine, that everyone is deserving of wrath. Everyone is deserving of the eternal wrath of God and eternal separation, which means death. Yet some people won't receive that. And we don't like that that has nothing to do with our effort. But yet God says, I'll have mercy on who I want. Because guess what? Anybody that gets out of that is catching a break. It's not like anybody's entitled to get out of it. But when we start to think otherwise, we're like, well, everybody should have a chance. Why? Just look at your own behavior. You don't give everybody a chance. If you're being honest, we all have bias. We all look at certain people and certain groups of people, and we don't give them a chance. Yet we expect God to be different. Yet we expect God to give mercy to everyone. Well, God can do what he wants. We don't get to choose that for God. Not only that, but God has a purpose in giving mercy God has a purpose in hardening heart. Remember the story of the Exodus and what does God continue to do throughout Exodus? Harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh didn't have a say in what he was doing. It's ludicrous to think otherwise. It's what the scripture says. God softens his heart and hardens his heart. Softens his heart and hardens his heart. It's God doing it. God had a purpose and plan for the Exodus of the Israelite and he executed it. To think that God couldn't supersede your own will with his will is crazy. Why would you pray? Why would you pray for somebody in your life that is not a believer? Why would you pray for somebody, your grandchildren, that they would drive safely on the road? What are you really asking for? You're asking the sovereign God of the universe to intercede on the free will of someone else. To, to, so not to look at that and be, and be shocked at this idea that God would do that is crazy because you should stop praying then. Because when you pray, you're beseeching God to do the very thing that we have an issue with most of the time. Which is, God, we want you to step in and you to take control. You know that famous song by Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel. What do you, what do you mean? I mean, Jesus, literally, take the wheel, take it out of my hands. You take the reins in my life. That's the whole purpose of Christianity, right? It says we have died to ourselves, <laughs> And we come out of new creation. God now lives within us. The Holy Spirit dwells within the temple of the body. I must decrease so that he might increase. The whole purpose of your life, what sanctification is, is you dying and Christ living in you. If this doesn't make sense, then I feel like our core doctrine is wrong at a foundational level within ourselves. 
So Paul continues on in verses 19 through 21. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not a potter have the right to make out of some lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Okay, we get to the next argument. Well, God, if you're really the one calling the shots, if you're really behind the scenes making the decisions, allowing me to sin and not allowing me to sin, give me the permission to do hardening and softening, doing all this stuff, then why are you blaming me? And I love Paul's response. He doesn't even get into that argument. Like, it's, it's neat. He doesn't, even, he doesn't even argue that. What does he say instead? Who are you, a human being, to talk like that to God? How many of you guys have felt this way with a child before? Just be honest. Raise your hand. Who are you, my child, to talk to me like that? Or, you know, that old saying that was always famous, I brought you into this world and I can take you out of this world? Isn't that what kind of God flexes here? Like, who are you, a human being, to talk to me? And he goes on, wait, let me tell you what a human being is. It's like a lump of clay. And that's how low we are compared to God, amen? Remember when it describes Jesus becoming a human, what does it say? He became, and he was nothing. Remember, Philippians 2? He became nothing. That is what the difference between God and man is. God is here. Man is nothing compared to God. Not that man doesn't have value, but compared to God, he's nothing. He's like a lump of clay. It is by God's will and God's goodness that you even exist in the first place. How do we know it was God's goodness? That's the attribute that created. Because he looked at everything and said, it is good. That was grace to begin with. He didn't have to create us. He certainly didn't have to form humanity in his image, yet he willed it to be so because of his grace and his goodness. And so when I look at God and say, well, why do you blame me for me doing wrong when you're calling the shots? That's like a lump of clay saying to the potter, well, why didn't you make me something really valuable and special? We're going to get to why you're special in a minute. Romans 9, 22 through 29. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for his glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand on the sea, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have come like, become like Gomorrah. Paul is not only appealing to this new idea, but he's going back to scripture after scripture in the Old Testament to confirm what he's saying has always been the case. He says, what if God... 
although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath. What if you don't see the whole picture? What if you don't really have enough perspective to ask God this question because you don't know what God is going through? What if God was really patient with his objects of wrath, that he bore with patience? Don't we know that to be true? Let's take it outside of some nebulous concept and bring it within ourselves. Is it fair to say that God bears with great patience you? I know it is with me. Because day by day, I fall short of his glory. Even though I have the power of the Holy Spirit within me and I've been made new, I no longer have this sinful nature within me, I still fail to obey God perfectly. Even though I have the capacity to do so. Yet God, with his great patience, bears with me. Day after day, moment after moment, week after week, year after year. What if God knows what he's talking about? What if? What if God has a plan? What if God is really God? You think about that? What if God is God and we're not? He says something cool. What if he did this in advance to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? What if God punishes those he's punishing so that those he doesn't punish get to see how good it is that they're not getting punished? Hmm, that's an interesting concept. You don't think God uses examples? Do you use examples when you're teaching somebody something? How can you have good if there's no bad? How can there be good news when there's no bad news? If everyone's going to heaven, then what's the purpose? There is no purpose. And by the way, this is all for what? For God's glory. Don't forget, everything God does is for, first and foremost for his glory. Because God is all about who? God. God's not all about man. God's about man because man looks like God. And because God chose man. But God is all about God because for God to desire or worship anything other than himself would be idolatry. Because he is God. God is about his glory first and foremost. And he says things like, I will call them my people who are not my people. Amen. Because like I said, most of us here weren't Israelites by genetics. We wouldn't be sitting here if that weren't the case, right? And that was always his plan. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. Wow. Could you imagine what it would have been like if he didn't choose to do that? We wouldn't be sitting here. We wouldn't be talking about this. In this section, Paul finishes laying out the concept of sovereign will. In his sovereign will, God wills all that comes to pass. He makes great plans and elects those who he chooses to elect for his glory and his pleasure. The choice we have to make by faith today if we are to accept Paul's teaching is whether or not God is truly perfectly sovereign. See, God is sovereign in his nature and therefore doesn't have to give an explanation or measure up to anyone's values, morals, or ideas. This means that God only does what God pleases for his glory alone. And I think at the root of this, this is either good news to you or bad news to you. This is either good news or bad news. Either you like the idea that God is in control because you've given up the facade of control in your life, or you don't. Or you want to be in control. Meaning you want to 
feel like you are in charge of what ends up happening with regards to your salvation. Paul concludes this way in verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness have not obtained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, I see, or see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul wraps up this chapter with the answer to the most important question, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness were given righteousness by faith through Christ, through God's choosing. Yes, we shall say that. That even though Gentiles were not pursuing righteousness in God, God chose to make them righteous anyway by faith through Jesus Christ. Amen? And Israelites, by heredity, who did pursue legalistic righteousness, were rejected by God's choosing because of the reason they believed they would be saved. And that would be on their own merit. Because grace is unmerited favor, meaning it's something you can't earn or won't deserve. It is God's free choosing through his love and his goodness. Is this news that God elects them who elects those whom he chooses through faith in Christ and gives them righteousness, good or bad news to you today? You have to think about this a little bit. Do you fear, disdain, or outright reject the idea of a sovereign God who calls the elect by faith through Christ alone to righteousness? That's one way to self-examine that. Or do you savor the magnificent glory of God in his choosing to elect those whom he foreknew that he predestined to adoption through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not based on human effort? Because that's the God I serve. That's the God of the Bible. And we should savor his magnificence because he didn't have to do any of it. He chose to. Jesus once says this to his first disciples in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You did not choose me, I chose you. See, the Bible makes it pretty clear that God does what he wants, when he wants, and for his own pleasure and purpose. That means that if you are in Christ today, he wanted you. That's pretty good news. He wanted you. I want you to say this with me. God wanted me. On the count of three. One, two, three. God wanted me. I didn't want God. God wanted me. And when God regenerated me through rebirth, now I want God. Because of his Holy Spirit. But God wanted you first. This is great news. This morning, I want you to look at this magnificent response to the sovereignty of God in Daniel. This is the last thing we're going to read to this morning. Daniel 3, 17 and 18. This is, for context, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Hananiah, Ezariah, and Mishael. They're real names. Not their Babylonian names. These are three kids 
three teenage boys anyway, who are about to be thrown into a blazing furnace because of their obedience to God this morning. And this is what they say to the person that could stop this from happening. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We will not serve your gods or worship the images. We know God has the power to deliver us, and he will. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow and give in to sin. That is the appropriate response to the sovereign will of God. We need to get better. We need to grow in our faith. We need to believe that when we obey God through love, that God always delivers what is best and what is perfect and what is right. This morning, I want to encourage you to rest in the sovereignty of God. God has a plan for each one of your lives. And if you are in Christ this morning, he chose you to do good works. It's never easy, and it's often painful to follow God. But when God calls you, he gets his way. We can rest in the fact that our God is perfect in love and perfectly just.